Nick, I'm really excited to announce that we have something brand new in the works to help our fourth year medical students who have matched into OBGYN get prepared for their internship and residency. Yeah. Last year, you guys may have seen on Twitter and Instagram the hashtag OBGYN intern challenge. And this year, we're making it even bigger and better with a huge team of experts in education, including ourselves, to prepare you to enter residency on day one, ready to rock. So if you're interested and want to sign up, this is going to be a month-long OBGYN intern challenge where we incorporate podcasts, text-based questions, and even trivia nights um, that will hopefully be both fun and educational. Check out the website www.obgyninternchallenge.com to find out more information and figure out how you can enroll. We should have enrollment open soon, so stay tuned. So Nick, I'm really glad we had the OBG project to refer to when we made this HS episode. Yeah, you know, and actually I would even go back to say with cholestasis and with so many of our other episodes, the OBG project is like a great place to start to get the quick summary. And then they even have additional reading for us or for our listeners to dive into the topic further. Absolutely. Um, and so if you also are part of their subscription service, OBG First, you can also create your own bookshelf so that you can have your articles to go back to. They'll also send you emails and things like that about the latest journal articles and findings so that you're always up to date on the most recent literature. If you're a chief resident, you can actually get OBG first for absolutely free for one whole year. Head on over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. There's a link where you can get signed up for OBG first. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over, over coffee. coffee. All right, today we're going to go back to one of those episodes that is like, why have we never done this before? How have we never done this before? And go through induction methods. Faye, what are our learning objectives? So today we are first going to discuss the Bishop's scoring system and its interpretation. We are going to review the most common methods for labor induction, uh, mechanical and pharmacologic, as well as identify their respective contraindications. And then we'll of course briefly compare the um, efficacy of all of these methods alone and in combination. And of course this won't be our main focus for today, but there are lots of studies out there looking at that. So start us off, Nick, talk to us a little bit about, you know, the background and context for labor induction. Why are we inducing so many people nowadays? Yeah, so I mean, I think probably everybody who is involved in labor and delivery, regardless of how you feel about it, knows that labor induction is becoming more common in the U.S., right? CDC data shows that as of 2018, it's about 27% of labor in the United States is induced, and this is a twofold increase since 1990. Again, the ARRIVE trial published in 2018 is still playing out in terms of its effects and how many places are offering 39-week induction routinely, I'm not entirely sure, but it's reasonable to think that rates of induction are only going to continue to rise as we sort of get capacity to offer induction more routinely at 39 weeks. Reasons for labor induction are varied and significant. I mean, again, we 
just talked about the ARRIVE trial and sort of that as like a 39-week induction routinely, but there are also a ton of other reasons to induce labor at before or after 39 weeks. Now, we can't cover all of that in one podcast, though we've certainly had episodes covering some of the many reasons to induce labor before. Um, if you're looking for a resource, ACOG Committee Opinion 818 is a great resource to review common reasons for induction prior to 39 weeks. So coming back to sort of our focus for today, there certainly is a need and there's been a lot of research into labor induction from the straightforward methodology of induction, health systems and quality implications and cost effectiveness analyses. There's a lot that's been published and there's a lot still to do. So there's some great opportunities for resident and fellow research if you're into OB. And we'll touch a base a little bit on that today. But before we even get to sort of the methods, Faye, we got to talk about the Bishop score. Yeah, so the Bishop score was developed by Dr. Edward Bishop, published in the Green Journal in August of 1964. I didn't realize that the Green Journal had been around for that long. Um, So (laughs) the score basically uses a combination of five physical exam findings to predict the successfulness of the induction of labor. And these include one, cervical dilation, two, cervical effacement, three, fetal station with respect to the ischial spines, four, the position of the cervix, so posterior, mid, or anterior, and finally, the consistency of the cervix, so firm, medium, or soft. The first three components, which are dilation, effacement, and station, are known as the modified Bishop score. On our website, we'll have a table of the scoring system and the points assigned for each criteria. A score can range anywhere from zero to 11 points. Usually, it's considered in multiparous patients a score of six or greater, pretends favorability with labor induction with oxytocin, and in nulliparous patients, a score of eight or greater pretends favorability. If the score is less than these, then the recommendation is generally to pursue cervical ripening prior to augmentation of labor with oxytocin. So speaking of cervical ripening, Nick, talk to us about how we can ripen a cervix. Yeah, so... Let's just talk about the cervix for a little bit because it's helpful to know some about the cervix to understand like how these ripening methods kind of work. Cervical remodeling is a huge part of labor, right? Again, that cervix, which starts out as like that tiny little tube, has to completely remodel and go from this like generally three to four centimeter long, completely closed, firm tube to something that's 10 centimeters completely effaced away, all in the course of like hours to a day or two in order to deliver a baby, right? So there's this whole like biologic process in order to get this to reshape that takes the form of collagen breakdown and rearrangement, changes in the glycosaminoglycan and cytokine environment, and infiltration of leukocytes locally. A lot of these changes occur with local signaling pathways that generally cause local release of prostaglandins at the level of the cervix. There's also central hormonal signaling pathways that are associated with oxytocin release from the posterior pituitary gland that also help the cervix to remodel. When the cervix isn't ready to dilate, as is in the case with labor induction or even procedures for pregnancy termination or demise management, such as that with DNE. Methods to ripen the cervix improve success and reduce the rate of complications. And we're not going to talk about preterm labor today, but some research to prevent preterm labor is focused particularly on this cervical remodeling aspect. So again, more opportunities for you guys listening to go change the world. 
We'll talk about methods for cervical ripening in two broad categories. Generally speaking, there are mechanical and pharmacologic methods. Mechanical methods use a combination of local action to physically cause cervical dilation, as well as release local endogenous prostaglandin promoting cervical dilation further. And so today we'll talk about Foley balloons, mechanical dilators, and amniotomy. Pharmacologic methods, on the other hand, are the use of synthetic prostaglandins or oxytocin to cause a direct pharmacologic effect on the uterus and cervix. And so in this case, we're going to talk about mesoprostol, the other prostaglandins, and oxytocin. So without further ado, Faye, let's talk first about mechanical methods um, and probably the old trusty Foley balloon, I imagine, to start off. Yes, definitely. Let's start off with the Foley balloon. So this is probably the most common and probably the best tolerated form of mechanical cervical ripening. If you've been anywhere near a labor floor, you've probably seen a Foley balloon. Mm -hmm. So it's essentially a long, thin tube that can be placed into the cervix um, that goes within the internal cervical os. And there is a balloon at the very end that can be filled with 20 to 80 cc's of saline. Essentially what happens is this tricks the cervix into believing that there is a very well-engaged fetal head that's pushing on the cervix, and that promotes pure mechanical dilation just from the pressure of the balloon on the cervix itself, um, as well as localized prostaglandin release. Some devices exist that where, where there's like a double balloon, which basically has a second balloon that acts at the external os, and there's some thought that this may help promote cervical dilation and prostaglandin release even further. Overall, there are relatively few contraindications to placing a Foley balloon. Um, unlike pharmacologic methods, it's not really associated with tachycystole or fetal heart rate abnormalities, and it can also be removed very easily if there's any type of adverse reaction. An absolute contraindication um, might be a latex allergy, for example, if you use a balloon that has latex, but certainly there are now a lot of Foley balloons out there that are not made of latex because latex allergies are pretty common. Relative contraindications include things like a low-lying placenta, um, where the balloon contacting the placenta may cause vaginal bleeding, may cause that very um, edge of the placenta to abrupt, you know, ruptured membranes. So there's some mixed data on this, but there's a thought that maybe placing a balloon after membrane rupture can increase the rates of chorioamnionitis or intraamniotic infection, as I have been corrected many times now by the residents <laughs> to call it. And finally, a variable or unstable fetal lie, which is where when you put a balloon into the cervix, um, and that can actually displace the fetal head. So just have a low threshold to rescan for presentation if you think that the baby may have floated away from your Foley balloon placement. So I think that covers pretty much Foley balloons, Nick. Talk to us a little bit more about those other things like mechanical dilators with laminaria and dilapan. Laminaria and dilapan are two hygroscopic dilators, meaning that they basically absorb water from the surrounding cervical environment to dilate themselves and force physical dilation of the cervix. And this also causes some localized prostaglandin release. Very similar in philosophy to how Foley balloons work in promoting cervical ripening. Laminaria to start is sterilized seaweed. Um, and in term labor, this has pretty much fallen out of favor um, in most centers because there are some studies that demonstrate an increased risk of infection with the use of laminaria in term labor. However, lambs are still routinely used safely for cervical ripening prior to DNE procedures, and so they're certainly things that you won't be unfamiliar with as an OB in the United States. 
The brand name Dilipan is a synthetic hygroscopic dilator, um, and Dilipan has been examined in a randomized trial for labor induction and has been found safe and acceptable for patients. Um, it's also used in DNA procedures. In most places, the expense of Dilipan, though, is a significant barrier to its use versus a Foley balloon. Um, so that's certainly one thing to consider with your mechanical ripening methods. Again, these are pretty similar to Foley balloons, so I don't think there's a lot else to say on these two. Let's move on to kind of, I guess, a little bit more, I'm not sure I would put it in the mechanical ripening type of phrase, but it kind of works in the same way. Amniotomy and membrane stripping. Yeah, membrane stripping, which is like my favorite thing now, is a common method that can be performed in the office in which the examiner or medical provider uses a gloved finger to... I guess, stir the membranes at the internal cervical os. I feel like this is better demonstrated on video or in person, but you know, you put a finger into the internal os and you essentially like swipe your finger around in a very large circle to basically move the membranes away from that internal os. And this promotes localized prostaglandin release and can be used to help ripen the cervix in in quotes, a natural and low-risk way. There are still, of course, complications because anytime you check the cervix and do some type of aggressive maneuver like this, it can cause some bleeding, it can cause painful contractions that unfortunately may still not lead to labor, and sometimes it can inadvertently lead to amniotomy. But overall, it's a very low-risk procedure that can be considered um, in most low-risk women at term if they want to go into labor, but they still don't want to come into the hospital, for example, for other methods of induction. And then, of course, there's amniotomy, which is my other favorite thing, or as it's better known on the labor floor, AROM, which is artificial rupture of membranes. And this is when an examiner or a medical provider breaks the amniotic sac using a tool such as a plastic hook. This allows for descent of the fetal head to the cervix, engagement essentially, to promote physical cervical dilation, as well as cause some localized prostaglandin release. Amniotomy alone is likely not appropriate for ripening or labor induction, um, and most commonly it's used in combination with something else, like pharmacologic methods, um, and it seems to be very effective in that context. Most studies demonstrate a shorter intervention to delivery time of combination medicine amniotomy methods versus only one of these alone. The most feared complication of an AROM, of course, is cord prolapse, um, in which the umbilical cord essentially falls down in front of the fetal head into the vagina, and this, is, of course, would require emergent cesarean delivery, because if the fetal head were to come down any further, it would compress the cord and cause asphyxia to the baby. The rates of cord prolapse with amniotomy, though, are very low overall, with the rates in the literature quoting somewhere between 0.1 to 0.7%, so very much less than 1%. Other complications or contraindications relate to infection, like um, chorioamnionitis or fetal heart rate abnormalities related to fluid decrease or umbilical cord compression, and these are generally variable decelerations which can of course be corrected with an amnioinfusion. Because the break in that barrier between the baby and the vagina, early amniotomy is generally not recommended in patients with HIV or hepatitis B or hepatitis C because there is thought that potentially you can increase the risk of vertical transmission from mom to baby. All right, so now that I've talked about my two most favorite things, let's go on and talk about the pharmacologic methods, Nick. So yeah, we'll lump mesoprostol and the other prostaglandins all together because kind of like the pharmacologic methods, they seem to all go together pretty easily. Um, mesoprostol is the OG, though. 
also known as prostaglandin E1, and that's, again, a synthetic prostaglandin that can be administered in almost as many doses and routes as you can imagine. Um, and for labor induction and ripening, we typically administer it either buccally, orally, or vaginally. Um, in studies that have been done, the majority of adverse outcomes noted in term labor has been with doses over 25 micrograms. So that's probably the most common dose that I've seen, though I've seen some institutions also that use 50 micrograms, at least for a loading dose potentially. This is going to be potentially, aside from oxytocin, the most common pharmacologic agent you will encounter for cervical ripening and induction of labor. It's well tolerated, effective, it's inexpensive, and generally pretty safe. And definitely for an unripe cervix, this is a great method to start an induction. Mesoprostol does have some drawbacks though, um, so let's review those really quick. Oxytocin, in comparison, has a pretty short half-life and is given IV, and you can turn the oxytocin off at any point. But mesoprostol, again, is this tiny little pill, um, and it can't be stopped or taken away. The only way that you're going to stop mesoprostol is to use a tocolytic, and even then it's only for a little while. Institutions that provide birth services need to have protocols in place to monitor fetal heart rate patterns and look for uterine tachycystole and have some strict time intervals in place for dosing for this reason. Mesoprostol can be pretty potent and can cause tachycystole and the resulting fetal heart rate abnormalities. ACOG doesn't necessarily suggest one particular monitoring protocol over another with respect to dosing, but it does say that, again, dosing should be every three to six hours and that you should have a monitoring protocol in place when using meso. Given the potency of mesoprostol, it's absolutely contraindicated for patients who are induced with a prior uterine scar, such as Tolax, um, and that's because there is a strong association with its use in uterine rupture. Mesoprostol also shouldn't be given to someone who has an abnormal cardiotocogram or abnormal fetal monitoring um, because, again, it's potent and you can't stop it quickly. Additional side effects of mesoprostol can include high fevers and GI upset, particularly when it's given via the oral or buccal routes, and this is probably because of the higher systemic absorption in those routes. The other prostaglandin to mention is prostaglandin E2. In the USA, the only remaining formulation is a vaginal insert containing 10 milligrams of dinoprostone, um, and that's commercially known as Cervidil. Yeah, um, I know you said like mesoprostol was the OG, but like 
pit or oxytocin is like the real OG, right? So oxytocin is the natural hormone from the posterior pituitary that promotes uterine contractions and labor. Um, and it can be used for cervical ripening as well in patients with an unfavorable cervix, particularly for patients where prostaglandins may be contraindicated. So in a patient who is tolacking, for example, and you can't give misoprostol. So in tolax, there still is a higher risk of uterine rupture in general compared to natural labor when we're using Pitocin, um, but there's a dose-dependent lower risk overall compared to prostaglandins. And so this is why some institutions will still allow for um, Pitocin induction of Tolax. And that risk of rupture is 6% when using prostaglandins versus just 1% using PIT. Um, institutions also will have different protocols for low-dose and high-dose um, oxytocin drips, and studies have varied in their description of the efficacy of one over the other, as well as what is really considered low dose versus high dose. Oxytocin also has specific uterine receptors, which promote intracellular calcium release in uterine muscles and also localized prostaglandin production for all you like cellular nerds out there. There's a positive feedback mechanism with the posterior pituitary during parturition, and so more oxytocin is produced and released over the course of childbirth. Complications overall are fairly few with synthetic oxytocin since it is so similar to our own biologic form, but because it is a posterior pituitary hormone, oxytocin has a very similar chemical structure to antidiuretic hormone or ADH, also known as vasopressin, and so in large doses, particularly if it's infused very quickly and not on an IV pump, oxytocin can actually lead to water intoxication or hyponatremia to a point where it can actually be fatal. And so it should always be run on a pump by a specifically trained nursing personnel, and this is why nurses get very angry if you touch their pump. I will have to put in a little word here for um, something called nipple stimulation because this is actually a way to cause endogenous oxytocin release and may be favored by some patients for like a home induction start or for patients who want to feel like they're doing, again, a more natural way of induction, so to speak. However, it's only been studied in low-risk pregnancies and generally seems to work better in patients with a favorable Bishop score already. Nipple stimulation has also been associated with an increased trend in perinatal deaths, so ACOG does not recommend its use in an unmonitored setting um, until there is further study. However, um, in a monitored setting for patients you know, who want to try and avoid Pitocin for some reason, this is a great way um, to get labor going potentially, and each institution is going to have their own protocol. All right, so I think the last part of our podcast, and I think the part that a lot of people are going to want to know the answer to, is which method is best? Yeah, that's the million dollar question, Faye. Um, and I feel like if you think something, you can probably find something to support your position. There's a real challenge in trials comparing labor induction methods. They're really highly variable in their populations and they're really highly variable in their outcome measures. And even if you're thinking about like what's most valuable to you in an outcome measure, you could name a hundred different things, right? Do you care most about the C-section rate? Do you care most about the time from induction to delivery? Do you care most about how long you have to use PIT for? Do you care about rates of infection or other complications? Do you care about a perinatal composite thing because you want it to be safe for the baby? The literature is full of examples that have used each and every one of those. And so it's really hard to make good solid comparisons across studies. Basically, we need some sort of giant labor induction multi-center trial to really figure this one out if we want to know the answer to it. 
There are some general conclusions that we can take away, though, from studies that have been published. One is that combination mechanical and pharmacologic methods are likely faster to achieve delivery than just the mechanical methods alone. The jury's a little bit out on pharmacologic versus combo methods, but versus mechanical alone, like a Foley versus Foley plus mesoprostol, adding the medication is generally going to be faster. The next kind of key takeaway is that, again, if you're concerned about fetal status or uterine tachycystole, mesoprostol is not going to be your best choice. So again, that's also a pretty easy takeaway and makes your decision as a provider really easy with what method you're going to use. And then finally, again, hearkening to that is that the patient in front of you is going to dictate what's best. Um, depending on your indication for induction, the varying factors of patient's medical and pregnancy history, and your institution's own experience and personnel, those things are all paramount to making induction successful. I mean, again, if your patient doesn't have good support during their labor process or during their induction process, then it doesn't matter if you use Foley Pit or Foley Meso, right? It's not going to work. Um, so be sure again, that you've got all of the things there to set your patient up for success, um, and patience with the labor induction process. Awesome. So I think that brings us to the end of this podcast on all the variations of induction and cervical ripening next. So let's go ahead and summarize. All right. So we talked to start about some context for labor induction. Again, it's becoming more common. Um, and we expect it to even become more common since the advent of the ARRIVE trial and similar studies. There's definitely a need, um, despite the already significant amount of research into labor induction, um, and these are great opportunities for research if you're into OB. Yeah, definitely. We then talked about the Bishop scoring. Um, so we talked about the five portions of the Bishop score, which include cervical dilation, effacement, fetal station, position of the cervix, as well as consistency of the cervix. And then we talked about how um, basically by assigning a Bishop score, this tells us how likely an induction is to be successful. In multiparous women, a score of six or greater pretends more favorability. And in oliparous women, a score of eight or greater pretends more favorability. With cervical ripening, we break the methods into two broad categories, mechanical and pharmacologic ripening. Mechanical methods use a combination of local action to physically cause cervical dilation as well as release local endogenous prostaglandins to promote cervical dilation. Pharmacologic methods, on the other hand, use a synthetic form of prostaglandins or oxytocin to cause a direct pharmacologic effect on the uterus and cervix. Mechanical methods include things like Foley balloons, mechanical dilators, amniotomy, and of course the good old stripping of the membranes. Pharmacologic methods include mesoprostol, which is prostaglandin E1, dinoprostone, or prostaglandin E2, and then the OG oxytocin. And then, of course, you know, the thing that we are all want to know the answer to is which method is best. Unfortunately, we don't have that answer for you today on this podcast. We know that the best method tends to be a combination method of some sort. And, of course, um, you want to make sure that your patient is in agreement with whatever method that you choose. Perfect. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy this episode, go ahead and go onto iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, on Instagram or Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee. Or if you love the show, head to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee. Send us some love. We'll send you some swag. We have show notes for this show and every other show on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And if you have a real opinion as to what's the best induction method, or if you have a question, a correction, or anything else for us, email creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.